Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the philosophical and the practical aspects of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories with David Campbell, including Elon Musk's company to build a Chicago to O'Hare express transport system, which may be the way for much of our transport future. We have a lovely, reflective chat with Paul Morell about a classic car that was recently sold at auction. It was not the Million Dollar Falcon, although it was at the same event. It was a 1964 chain-driven Honda S600. I loved the look of them when I was young, but Paul actually owned one, and he reminisces about its idiosyncrasies. And Errol Smith and I take a jovial look at some unusual stories of the day, including Bentley Celebrates Sewing Machine Day. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Audi Chief Executive Rupert Stadler was recently arrested in connection with parent company Volkswagen's Dieselgate emissions cheating scandal, with prosecutors saying they feared he might try to suppress evidence. The dramatic development comes a week after Munich prosecutors raided Stadler's home after charging him with fraud and falsifying documents. Stadler is the most senior executive yet to be detained in the Dieselgate crisis, which started when the Volkswagen Group admitted in 2015 to installing so-called defeat devices in some 11 million diesels worldwide that made them seem less polluting in lab tests than they actually were on the road. The affected vehicles involved VW's own brand cars, but also those made by Audi, Porsche, Skoda and Seat. VW's luxury subsidiary Audi has long faced suspicions that its engineers helped create the software used in the scam. Audi's former head of engine development, Wolfgang Hatz, was taken into custody in Germany in 2017 and remains behind bars. In the United States, video has emerged showing a Customs and Border Patrol agent asking bus passengers in Maine if they are US citizens and the coach driver telling them they must be citizens to ride the bus. Under U.S. law, the Customs and Border Patrol is authorised to operate interior checkpoints within 100 miles of the border, and such operations are routine. A spokesman defended the operation by saying, for decades, U.S. Border Patrol agents have routinely engaged in enforcement operations at transportation hubs throughout the nation. The incident has come to light just days after reporters were allowed to view a facility in Texas holding immigrant children whom the U.S. government has separated from their parents. Overdrive recently reported on Elon Musk's boring company building high-speed transportation tunnels in Los Angeles. Now he's doing it again, but this time in Chicago. Musk and Chicago's mayor recently announced that a proposed high-speed transportation system will whisk people between downtown Chicago and O'Hare International Airport at speeds of up to 150 miles per hour. It could be operational in about three years. 
Electric vehicles will carry passengers through underground tunnels in about 12 minutes each way. The mayor called the new transit system the fast lane to Chicago's future and said it will create jobs and make the city more competitive. Vehicles will depart the airport and downtown as often as every 30 seconds, and each vehicle will accommodate up to 16 passengers and their luggage. Jaguar Land Rover has launched Carp, an annual subscription service aimed at high mileage drivers. Unlike the Porsche, Mercedes-Benz, and Ford schemes, the Carp plans don't allow subscribers to sample various cars within a payment tier. Instead, subscribers choose a vehicle in the specification they want, and this vehicle is delivered to them straight from the factory. The contract length is 12 months, and the service is designed for drivers who do a lot of kilometres. And who want to experience a new car every year? The monthly fee includes insurance, service, and maintenance. Jaguar Land Rover has announced an overhaul of its UK manufacturing operations, revealing plans for a new family of Range Rover models and the relocation of Discovery production to their new facility in Slovakia. The next-generation Defender is also set to be built in Slovakia. The company has also announced plans for a refit of its Liverpool plant ahead of the next Range Rover Evokes launch next year. Asiona 100% eco-powered has become the first electric car to participate in the Fink Desert Race, which was recently held in Alice Springs. The car endured mixed fortunes during the event, timing out late on the first day's stage as a result of a 45-minute recharge along the route. The second day saw a much different outcome, however, with the team deciding to do the whole 230-kilometer stage without a recharge. The approach paid off, and the car finished the stage within the time limit. In 2017, the car made history, becoming the first zero-emissions vehicle to compete the Dakar Rally. And finally, in Wales, scores of cyclists ditched their clothes to take part in the 2018 Cardiff World Naked Bike Ride. Cyclists pedalled eight miles through the city centre, either completely naked, semi-naked, or wearing fancy dress to raise awareness about road safety, specifically for those using bikes. The event started in 2004, and Cardiff rides have been going since 2007. London and Brighton currently attract the most UK riders, with more than 1,000 cyclists taking part in each. While the U.S. city of Portland, Oregon, attracts around 8,000 riders every year, Overdrive is not aware of any Australian cities that are thinking of organising a similar event. And that has been the news. Recently, a Lloyd's auction for classic motorcars sold, among other things, a Ford Falcon GTHO for over a million dollars. Some may ask why, but nonetheless, that's the big news. But a critical element of that auction was a 1964 Honda S600 convertible coupe roadster. It sold for eighteen thousand five hundred dollars. The description described it as the slick convertible was the most fashionable car to be driving in, with sizzling acceleration, powered by a 606 cc four carburetor engine. My colleague Paul Morell actually owned one of these devices, 
and he joins me on the line now to give us some background and some understanding and some reality about just what the car was like. Paul, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. I'm still laughing at that description. I don't think I was very sophisticated or sizzling at the time I owned an S600. We are going back half a century. Yes, thank you for reminding me. Yes, we are. We're going back to, in my case, 1966. The S600 was actually launched in 1964. On a scale or a balance of being the most fashionable car versus being one of idiosyncrasies, where would you place the Honda S600? I would place it well down the list of idiosyncrasies. It was one of those cars that people would point at and laugh the same way as many people pointed and laughed at smart cars. It was so small and so jewel-like that most Australians just didn't understand the principle at all. And this little tiny car, revving its poor little heart out, because it was red-lined at 9,500 revs, just was completely outside their frame of reference. Because it used a motorbike engine, didn't it? It was essentially a motorbike engine. They were, Honda used, obviously, the technology and the understanding they had from building motorbikes. It wasn't actually a Honda motorbike engine, although a lot of the, a lot of the technicalities of it were... It had needle roller bearings, it, uh, so it had no oil pressure officially. It ran four little Cahin carburettors, which were always a, a wonderful thing to try and tune. Hmm. It was an amazing little little engine. It was all alloy. Back in those days, we you know we'd buy cars, and the first thing you'd do was strip down the engine and return them to their original specifications, which was called blueprinting at the time. We did the same thing with the Honda and realised that their tolerances were so far beyond anything we'd ever seen that we just quietly shook our heads and put it all back together because they were spot on to the tolerances even after a couple of thousand kilometres. Amazing little car. It was ahead of its time, but perhaps Humphrey would call it a brave decision that perhaps you were an early adopter. You were taking on something. I'm I'm desperately trying to justify your decision here, Paul. (laughs) Yes, I know. I'm still trying to justify my decision almost half a century later. (laughs) Is that the one that had an interesting drivetrain? Yeah, this was chain-driven, once again, from the the motorcycle technology. So what would happen was the chains, they were enclosed in alloy cases, and the the chains drove from the axle to the wheels at the back. So like a motorbike, it would drive the rear wheels using a chain, which was fully sealed and never a problem. That was one of the few things about that car that didn't cause me problems. But when you accelerated away, because it was chain-driven, the back would actually rise. In other words, the car would climb up the chains, if you like. So the back would come up like it was being braked. So people behind you thought you were braking. And it was how I won so many traffic light Grand Prix because everyone thought I was braking when I was still accelerating. Can I say, I loved the look of it because I saw a picture of it. So I never got a perception of how, how short and tiny it was. But I was very young and it was a picture after a while. But I just saw one and I kept going back to that picture because it had a certain distinctive simplicity about it that looked all the right proportions in a picture, but fortunately I didn't see it next to an E.H. Holden. Just, well, you wouldn't have seen it next to an E.H. Holden. It would have disappeared in the shadow. It was tiny. They were about, oh, now it was, in fact, 3.3 metres long, which is a tiny car. Look, I actually spent time with the man who worked on, on the development of the car. Originally it was developed as an S360, so a 360cc car. The idea being, or the, the reason being, that Japan had very stringent rules about engine capacity, so they were building to 360. Those rules were then rele- relaxed a little, and they built it an S500, and actually released an S500 in, in Japan, so a 500cc version. And then they went to 606 cc's. God, so much engine capacity. So six, <laughs> 
606 cc's, which was the one that finally came to Australia. Should say that is 0.6 of a litre. It produced over 100 brake horsepower per litre, um, which sounds spectacular, but it only had it only had 0.6 of a litre, so ultimately wasn't a fabulous thing. And it was designed and based very much on the Lotus Elan, that whole Colin Chaplin concept of lightweight simplicity wherever possible, though I must admit there was very little simplicity in the car, but they designed it and worked on the, the Lotus Elan because Toshiro Honda at the time had owned or did own an Elan and he thought that was the ideal sports car. And when he told his development teams the first time they were going into building a car, I want it built on this sort of line. And that's how they built it. So what they did was they, they literally took a Lotus Elan, pulled it apart and put it all back together. And when they understood the concept of the Lotus Elan, unfortunately because of that, that's why the car was so complex and far too delicate for Australian conditions. You found that it struggled over the bumps? Uh, it, look, it, it handled very well. It, it, was, it was a great handling little car. Um, it didn't struggle over the bumps, but it revved to 9,500 revs, and I used to, must admit, it took mine regularly to 11,000 revs when I was racing it or hill climbing it, being that sort of completely irresponsible and, and no respect for mechanical 18-year-old that I was at the time. And this was a time when most Australians sort of were driving Holdens or... If they had a sports car, it was a bug-eye sprite, you know. Near enough was always good enough. You changed the world when you thought about it. And Hondas just didn't cope with that sort of treatment at all. So therefore, they got a reputation for unreliability. Not because the cars themselves were badly designed, but because the owners didn't understand the, the complexity of the car. And whilst I'm still rabbiting on, the car sold for £990, £999 from memory, brand new. And the only reason they set that price was it was a little bit cheaper than the Bug Eye Sprite. It had absolutely nothing to do with what the car cost to develop. So that compounded the problem. You had buyers buying what they thought was a cheap sports car, not understanding that the, the technicality of it was so much more than they expected in a £1,000 sports car. Well, it sounds almost a bit like Jaguars, the later V12s particularly, which were a great engine if you did the hard yards in keeping them in good order, keeping them cool. Yeah, I think that's a good, good analogy. Back then, Australia was pretty much based on English cars with hmm. those slapdash engines and they'd last forever and you just treated them with utter and complete contempt. These days, we know better with those sort of engines. But back then, it wasn't explained to the buyers. I mean, Honda didn't know how to market cars at that time. They, they had a very small sales and technical operation in Melbourne, out at Essendon. It almost caused them serious problems because when they then introduced things like the Honda N360 and N600, those little tiny mini-like cars, the Scamp and the, the N360, oh, yes. people tended to go, oh, no, no, Honda's very unreliable. And, of course, they were air-cooled, so, you know, they, all sorts of suspicions were aroused. And it was only really when they came out with the Coupe 7, the Coupe 9, both of which were air-cooled and very complex and very delicate. And then they finally came up with the, uh, the Honda Civic, which overcame all those preconceptions people had. And the Honda Civic was a huge success, but it took a long time for them to live down that reputation for fragility and and delicacy that the S600 created, and its subsequent car, the S800, which was a little less delicate and didn't have chain drive. So an interesting, brave move, and, and, and Honda used Australia very much as their test market, very much as their, let's see how this works in, an, in the Australian market. It worked so well that they didn't bother to release it in the US. They did, they did sell a couple in the UK. <laughs> Now, the movie Malcolm used a little Honda buzz box, I think. 
That was the Honda Z. Yeah, the Honda Z. That's an indication of its quirkiness, wasn't it? That it wasn't mainstream. The Z was a delightful little thing. Hmm. No, it wasn't mainstream. The Z was a, a lovely little design. The Honda S600 convertible coupe roadster. There's a lot of buzzwords in there, really, isn't hmm. there? Hmm. I've never heard it described that way. It was, it was just the Honda Sports when I bought it. You could buy a coupe, which was tiny as well, with a lift packet. Interesting little car. I didn't, I didn't like the liftback version very much, but the sports car was... It was just a sports car. Mine actually had a detachable hard top, I must admit, which used to pool water on the rear shelf, and the first time you braked, it would then throw it all down the back of your neck. A, a clever design quirk. I rebuilt the engine twice in something like 30,000 miles, but that was my fault, because I over-revved it. It was, at that time, it was very much a sort of a postscript in automotive history. Paul, lovely to talk to you on that little historic note. Thank you very much for your wisdom and experience. Thank you, David. And we were talking there to Paul Morell and the 1964 Honda S600 convertible coupe roadster, which sold at auction for eighteen and a half thousand dollars This is Overdrive across Australia. And last week we talked about the Ram 1500 American pickup ute that we went to the launch of. We have now placed a video on our website at drivenmedia.com.au which reflects on why people might buy such a big vehicle. Also on our website is the full interview with Professor David Hensher that again we mentioned last week where he reflects on some of the transport planning needs and how we should look at various options before we go ahead with big projects. You're listening to Overdrive. And finally, at the end of the program, let's talk some quirky news. And on the line is Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. Now, Errol, you're a man of technology and gadgets and things. You have a story that relates in some ways to the olden days, yet has a modern twist. It certainly does, David. Apparently, sewing machine day is a thing. (laughs) news to me apparently it's celebrated on the 13th of june which is apparently the date the sewing machine was invented well in the motoring world if you want serious thread count on your wheels bentley is at the top of the game and they are celebrating sewing machine day by showing off their little sewing shop which is no sweatshop it's a state-of-the-art sewing factory with 120 staff yes that many why that many people you might ask Well, your average Bentley Continental GT, for example, has 2.8 kilometres of thread in the interior. No wonder it weighs so much. (laughs) I think if you can afford afford a Bentley, you're not too concerned about the performance-to-weight ratio. That's if you don't engage Bentley's Mulliner branch, which is Bentley's luxury brand, for one of a better description, for bespoke designs, where they will embroider anything you like. I remember a colleague of mine worked for Rolls-Royce for a while and he said he just really wondered when he watched three people spend a day or more just trying to make sure whether the seatbelt leather thing around the area where it was anchored to the car, the top part of the belt, should just sit right. (laughs) There was just a huge amount of effort 
to make a thing that I'm not sure whether a machine would do it better. We're into machines here, of course. What's the horsepower and the, the torque of the machines that they have there? Because it's not just a normal sewing machine, is it? No, no. They've got these sort of state-of-the-art things. Of course, obviously, everything's top-quality leather in these things. It's, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no vinyl in a Bentley. <laughs> Interestingly, the uh, classic diamond pattern is a combination of stitching and embroidery. Each one, each diamond, takes 300,000 stitches. Sorry, I may have, I may have uh, mixed up my numbers. I think 300,000 might be the total, total for, the whole, for the whole seat. <laughs> oh, for the whole seat. Oh, well, that's understandable then. Yes, yes. Yeah, sorry. 712 stitches per diamond, sorry. The seat has sort of like a multiple diamond pattern to mm, it, does yes. it? Yes, and it takes more than seven hours to produce the uh, interior for one car. And they've got, you know, state-of-the-art sewing machines that are specially designed just to produce these. Superficially, it looks like a fairly simple diamond pattern. Stitching is becoming quite a fashion and has been for a number of years where you get the seats or the leather has like a red stitching to it. Mm. It's really like an elegant border around seats yes. or even a GT stripe for your seats. Mm. can work quite well when it's, when it's done nicely. And, and, of course, we have seen some cars where it's more of a sort of a tacky add-on. Yes. You're sort of looking at it and you're thinking... Why would there be stitching there? It doesn't make any sense to hold anything together. Oh, okay. It's just, a, you know, they wanted an interesting line or a pattern down the an otherwise bland surface. Well, that's the principle of GT stripes anyway, isn't it? It has, <laughs> has no value to it. So it's purely decorative. Yes. It's not even a functional thing that's made decorative. It's purely decorative. Mm. In the case of the Bentley, the, uh, all the stitching and the embroidery shrinks the leather by 12% apparently, so they have to account for that when they, when they cut the leather. It's, it's a huge amount of, uh, of effort goes into the, uh, the simple seat that you sit on. So the crochet doilies I have over my seat has some credibility now? Is that <laughs> To somebody, David. <laughs> my mother made them for me. Oh, okay. Sentimental value perhaps. The Cardiff Naked Bike Day will come, I think we're talking about that next week, but it will be an interesting point, Errol, that perhaps uh, if they did the sewing machine thing in Naked or something, then it might make some appearance. Now, Errol, and talking about sewing machines, if I mentioned the Singer Car Company, what would you think? I'd say they were long gone. Long gone and had nothing to do with sewing machines. <laughs> yes. They were, in fact, they came out of the bicycle industry in England, whereas the Singer Corporation that makes sewing machines came from America mm. and was first established earlier, in fact, in 1851. Name the car company that did start as manufacturing sewing machines. European, under the brand of General Motors, but now being sold off, it was the Opel Car Company. Oh. And name the Japanese car company that started out making looms, as it turns out, went into cars in about the first half of the 30s and then went into sewing machines, only as a side product, in 1946. Uh, I don't know, Nissan? Toyota. 
Wow. Hmm. It is a sign of elegance, isn't it? It's hmm. a sign of... Do you, do you agree that something is worth so much more when it's handcrafted? We think of the Morgan car, which is made, some of them, with a still amount, a strong amount of wood. Yes, yes. Does that make it better? I don't know, but it certainly makes it more expensive yeah. and therefore a little bit more out of reach for most and uh, and therefore a luxury item. It also makes it unique, but possibly in the wrong way because the <laughs> panels might not fit together exactly the same as they, they would if they were manufactured by a robot. Yes. Football. World Cup. Big news there. Hyundai has been sponsors of the Australian Football League for some time. They're expanding their reach. And here we're talking about soccer, of course, rather than what Australians might more typically call football. Hyundai is expanding their sponsorship roles, firstly, in the Chelsea Football Club. Now, Errol, can you remember any football team that is individually sponsored by a car company? No, not off the top of my head. Well, perhaps that's your lack of interest in football as well. I think that's that's more like it, likely the issue there. Someone asked me the other day, they said, oh, the big game of rugby league's on the, the state of origin. I said, oh, yeah, who's playing? <laughs> I did know, but I, I must confess it. I must say that car companies haven't necessarily had a great run with them. Some have worked well in Australia, uh, but in Manchester United for a while, a guy from America got the role of the marketing manager in the UK and negotiated a deal with Manchester United. I think it was worth $46 million, $46, 47000000 million. Crazy money, isn't it, in the, in the, the top echelons of, of the world game? Unfortunately, uh, Chevrolet pulled out of the UK market a year later. <laughs> <laughs> he lost his job. But the other great problem was General Motors provided a pile of Camaro sports cars for the top players in Manchester United. They didn't drive them. They didn't like them. They went back to driving their Range Rovers that they bought yes. themselves. <laughs> and so many of them sat unused in the car park. Oh, dear. So it didn't work. But what car companies typically do... You might think that if you sponsor a team, Manchester United, or Chelsea in this case, that you may offend the other people. Well, I don't. There's a general tendency for people to say, well, at least you're supporting the football code. Mm. But that you then do a huge number of activities with the fans and the members of that football team. You know, you can get discounts and you get everything. So it creates a great brand within there. Mm. I can't imagine a lot of the football stars of, uh, of Chelsea wanting to, to be driving their sponsors' vehicles. I'm sure they'd rather be seen in something a little bit more upmarket. Yes, Errol, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. No worries, David. Errol Smith, and we were talking some quirky news. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Errol Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. 
Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.